Thank you, uh, Dr. Boland, for the introduction. I appreciate it. And uh, I also want to thank Dr. Halstead and the School of Biblical Studies for giving me this opportunity today to preach before you. It's something that uh, is a tremendous privilege, and I'm thankful and happy to do it. It's a great honor to preach from this pulpit in this place. I also want to welcome all of you who are here for Monday at Masters. Welcome to Masters. Uh, we hope that you're having a wonderful time seeing our campus, sitting in on classes, and uh, enjoying chapel today. Now you might be wondering, so you've got one shot, Ryan, to preach in chapel. What are you going to do? Do you just flip through the text, put your finger down, Zephaniah 2, and then go for it? How do you decide what to preach? Well, I've been, uh, when I have an opportunity back home uh, at my home church in Northern California to preach, I've been going through the Gospel of John. And it just so happens that uh, where I left off is the end of John chapter 2 and the beginning of John chapter 3. So I'd invite you, if you have your Bible, to open up to the Gospel of John. The end of John 2, the beginning of John chapter 3. And uh, coincidentally, about a month ago, Mike Amendroth, you might remember, he was here and preached on this same text, the text John chapter 3. So if you weren't here, you didn't have a chance to listen to that, maybe you were dozing in the back row, I'd highly recommend going back and listening to that because it'll help fill in the gaps of some things that I won't cover today. He went through the whole chapter. We're just going to be looking at the end of John chapter 2 and then the first five verses of John chapter 3. But before we begin today, it would be appropriate, would it not, to go to the Lord in prayer. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for this place that we call home here, the Master's University, a place that is uh, dedicated to you and to your word, to scripture, a place that exalts Christ and seeks to proclaim him throughout the world. Uh, it's your gospel that saves, and we've been entrusted with that to go out to all the nations and proclaim who you are. Lord, I pray for this morning. I pray for everyone here in this room that as your word is taught, that they'd be receptive to what you have to say in your word. And I pray that I would preach your word as you have intended it, that I'd be faithful to the text, faithful to what you've said, so that you might be honored and you might be glorified. Lord, it's not about me. It's tempting to think that when you're up here. And I pray that you'd give me humility and you'd give me what you would have me say from your word. Thank you for this text, a text that is so instructive for us that explains how a person can enter the kingdom of God, something that's so important, something that's so crucial. Thank you again for this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. Now when he, he being Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. In life, there are these things that we call contrasts, things that are polar opposites of each other. You can think of light and dark, good and evil, black and white, Hotchkiss and Cedub, things that are totally opposite from each other. And today, we're going to see a massive contrast here in John chapter 2 and John 3. We're going to see Jesus and his perception that he's God. He knows what's in man. We're going to see that contrasted with Nicodemus, this ruler of the Jews, this Pharisee, this man who is very imperceptive. Jesus's perception contrasted with Nicodemus's imperception. This spiritual leader, this teacher of truth, this teacher of Israel, rather, who cannot understand truth, cannot understand spiritual truth. So as we go through this passage this morning, just keep those two contrasts in mind, those two realities, Jesus' perception, Nicodemus' imperception, and we're going to flip-flop back and forth between them as we go through this text today. But first, this begs the question, how have we gotten here? What has precipitated this? What has happened before this text? Nicodemus didn't just show up out of the blue to talk to Jesus. There must have been something that went on before. Why has Nicodemus come to Jesus? Well, you know the phrase, common phrase, the calm before the storm. How everything can be peaceful and it can be quiet, serene. And then all of a sudden the wind changes direction, the temperature drops, and the storm is upon you. Well, John 1, the beginning of John 2, is kind of like the calm before the storm. Jesus, at least compared to what he will do, hasn't done a whole lot of things. He's uh, called some of his disciples, at least initially. He's been baptized. We know that from the other Gospels. He's been tempted in the wilderness, Matthew 4, Luke 4. We know that from the other Gospels. And at the beginning of John 2, John 2, verses 1 through 11, he's turned water into wine, which was really more of a private miracle anyways. The bridegroom, if you remember, actually got credit for the wine. So what he has done is not like what he will do. But then this seismic shift occurs at the second half of John 2. Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover, and he enters the temple, and he sees all sorts of money changers in the temple, turning God's house into a house of merchandise. And he proceeds to clear out the temple and drive people out. And he says in verse 16 of John chapter 2, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. And then later on in that chapter, in verse 19, he first predicts his death and resurrection. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And John informs us he was speaking of the temple of his body. So this is when Jesus' public ministry really begins. This is not the Passover at his death. This is one of his first Passovers, his first Passover really, in his public ministry. And it's the unleashing of God's Messiah on national Israel and the sign after sign, the miracle after miracle, the healing after healing for the next three years or so, of course, all culminate in his death and his resurrection three years later, which, like I said, was first predicted by Jesus in John chapter 2. So, this is a significant chapter in the Gospel of John. It's in light of this backdrop that this conversation takes place. Now remember I said keep in mind these two contrasts, Jesus' perception and Nicodemus' imperception. 
And we first get a good dose of Jesus' perception here in verses 23 through 25. Now, I'm sure you remember chapters and verses. They're not original to the Greek text. John was not sitting around thinking, should I have 21 or 22 chapters in my gospel? That was not on his mind. He wasn't thinking, how many verses do I need to have here? Where's the proper break? That was all done, of course, by later editors, and it's unfortunate a little bit here in this text because the end of John chapter 2 really begins, I'd argue, with the beginning of John chapter 3. And in these verses, we learn something very important about Jesus. And if you're taking notes this morning, this will be the first of three statements that we're going to look at in this text. Three statements, and then we'll close with a couple concluding applicational points. Three, got three observations, then a couple of implications. And the first statement this morning, if you're taking notes, is that Jesus rightly sees all men. Jesus rightly sees all men. He knows what's in man. After all, he is man's creator. Uh, it's interesting. Look at verses 23 and 24 of John chapter 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. We see a great contrast here as well. There's going to be many contrasts as we go throughout this text. Here's another one. We see that Jesus, or rather that many, were beholding Jesus' signs, which he was doing, and believing in his name. But Jesus, in verse 24, was not entrusting or believing himself to them, for he knew all men. This word believe here is a different form of the same Greek word. In other words, Jesus, or rather John, is saying that many, many of the multitudes that are seeing all these signs that Jesus is doing, many are believing in him, but Jesus is not believing in them. People believe in Christ, Christ not in them. Now, how is this possible? It doesn't seem to make sense, right? I mean, does not Jesus say... The one who comes to me, I certainly will not cast out. So then how can Jesus not entrust himself to those who say they believe in him? What's the answer? How does this work? The answer is that Jesus rightly sees all men. What do you mean? These people who, quote unquote, believe are not believers. And Jesus knows that. He knows their hearts. Turn with me over a couple chapters to John 6. John 6 is uh, later on, obviously, in Jesus' ministry. Uh, he's dealing with the bread of life. This is the bread of life discourse. That he's the bread that came down out of heaven that you have to eat of him to have life. And at this point in time in Jesus' ministry, he's accumulated a good deal of followers, people who, quote-unquote, again, believe in him. And look at verse 59. This is, like I said, after the Bread of Life discourse. Verse 59 of John chapter 6. These things, the things about him being the bread of life, he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Many of these disciples, Jesus' followers, this is a general term, it's not the 12 disciples, it's just those that are following him, his disciples, people that are learning from him, this great crowd of, mul or this great multitude, this great crowd of followers, 
they say, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Man, all this talk, Jesus, about you being the bread of life, it's, wait for it, hard to digest. Difficult to chew on. It's tough to swallow, Jesus. We don't get it. It's hard to understand. So what do they do? Six verses later, verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They walk away. They walk away from Jesus. They were not true believers. Back to our text this morning in John chapter 2. Jesus knows that this is the end result of the many who believe in him. He rightly sees them. He knows they don't have eyes of faith. They're following him for all sorts of other reasons, reasons that maybe uh, he's interesting. He's doing all these things. It's, it's kind of fun to follow, if you will. Jesus knows the end result of the many who believe. He knows their faith isn't genuine, and he sees their shallow, half-hearted commitment. Jesus rightly sees all men. And that's kind of the prologue as we get into our text in John chapter 3, where the editors decided John chapter 3 should begin. Prologue is that Jesus knows all men. He knows what's in man. He knows what's in man, the end of verse 25. And in the beginning of verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, this man came to him by night. We don't know why. There's many theories on this. Uh, Ultimately, Scripture doesn't say, and so we can't really speculate about it. But he came by night, and he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Here we see Nicodemus's imperception. Imperception. That's our second point today. Nicodemus can't rightly see Jesus. Jesus rightly sees all men. Nicodemus can't rightly see Jesus. What do you mean? Look at verse 2. I mean, Nicodemus, he calls Jesus a rabbi, and Jesus was a rabbi. He says, Jesus, you've done all these signs, and Jesus had done signs. He said, you've come from God as a teacher, and Jesus was a teacher. And he even says that God is at work because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. If you'll remember later on, some Pharisees, some Sadducees, they they accuse Jesus of doing his works by the power of Satan. Nicodemus is not doing that. He's saying, you're from God. We know that. He says God's at work. So what's the problem here? Nicodemus does not have eyes of faith. Jesus knows, whatever they were, Nicodemus's true motives. And he does not want any of this Nicodemian schmoozing, if you will, this shallowish commendation of Jesus. Look back at uh, John 1, just a couple chapters earlier. There's another contrast here. Verse uh, 47, Jesus is talking to Nathanael. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, John 1, verse 47, and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So Nathanael sees this sign of Jesus, this fact that Jesus, when I was under the fig tree, he saw me. How is this possible? And what does Nathanael say? Look at verse 49. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you're the son of God, the king of Israel. Nicodemus, hey Jesus, uh, we know you're a teacher uh, from God, 
uh, of course, because no one can do these signs unless God's with him. God, wasn't, or God was not with Jesus. Jesus is God. Nicodemus did not have the eyes of faith that Nathaniel possessed. You know, I wonder what Nicodemus was planning on saying. Jesus just kind of abruptly cuts him off at verse 3. But we do know he couldn't rightly see Jesus. He did not possess eyes of faith. And Jesus makes that clear by this abrupt interruption. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here we see another aspect of Jesus' perception. We've seen that he rightly sees all men. We've seen Nicodemus does not rightly see Jesus. And now here, we see that Jesus rightly sees Nicodemus. Jesus does not just know all men generally, that he knows all men and what's in man in a general sense, but he knows what's in each man specifically. He knows what's in me, he knows what's in all of you, and he knows what's in Nicodemus. And he knows that Nicodemus' greatest need is to be born again. This is not something that Nicodemus can do. Uh, For all you Greek geeks out there, this is a passive verb. It's something that must be done to him. He does not have the power to give himself a new birth. He must be born again. There's an interesting thing about this phrase, born again. For those of you who do know Greek, uh, born again could also be translated born from above. And there's this discussion here. What is Jesus saying? Is he saying you must be born a second time or born from up above? Well, if you look at verse 4, Nicodemus certainly understood Jesus' words as being born again a second time. I think that's the best way to take this text. But Nicodemus does not understand. He does not understand. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus questions him, verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time, born again, as I'd argue, a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Can he? Now the Jews were very familiar with this idea of the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. To enter the kingdom of God, to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. But the big problem with the Jewish people was that they thought their heritage was enough to grant them access and entrance into God's kingdom. Matthew 3, 9, you don't need to turn there. You can if you want to. But John the Baptist basically condemns the Pharisees and the Sadducees for trusting in their ancestry, for believing that who they were as Jews was enough to get them into the kingdom of God. Matthew 3, and do not suppose, this is John the Baptist speaking to the Pharisees, the the leaders of the Jews. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you, That from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. So John is destroying this idea that because you're a Jew, because you have the right heritage, you're a physical descendant of Abraham, you're granted automatic access into God's kingdom. And Jesus kind of reiterates that here when he says, unless a man is born again, not unless a man is born a Jew. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul kind of helps us understand this a little bit as well. You can go with me over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 
6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Paul explains that to enter God's kingdom, to see the kingdom of God, it's those who are of faith, not those who have the right lineage. And like I said, Nicodemus' response in verse 4, demonstrating that he still cannot rightly see Jesus. And Jesus answers him in verse 5, reiterating the same thing with just some slightly different words. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, what does this mean, born of water and the Spirit? There's a, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of opinions about this. So important though, right? Jesus says, if, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. So you want to get this right. You want to know what does it mean to be born of water and the Spirit. You don't want to mess this up. And unfortunately, it's very common malady to do so. I remember my senior year of high school. I, uh, I went to a high school. It was a Christian school, at the minimum in name only. And uh, it was a bit different theologically than we are here, a bit broader, if you'd say. Uh, I studied for many years under a guy who was a Fuller Theological Seminary graduate, and if you know anything about Fuller, they're generally full of it. Uh, many, many doctrines that are crucial to biblical Christianity, crucial to Orthodox Christianity, are things that uh, they deny, and they deny uh, boldly and proudly. And so I had that kind of theological training, theological environment, in high school, and of course I see the Lord's hand through all of it. It has helped me shape a lot of biblical convictions and theological convictions that I might otherwise not have had. Um, but it was still a challenging time. It was a challenging time. I went to that high school for two reasons. I wanted to play sports, and I wanted to get a girlfriend. And since I was homeschooled, I figured I couldn't do either in the present situation I was in. <laughs> the, uh, the first one happened, the second one did not. And I think, I think that's a good thing. I see, obviously, God's grace and all that because I probably would have been stupid otherwise, and I mean that. So I do see the Lord's hand in all of that, my time in high school. Uh, and I remember having a conversation my senior year of high school. I was a true believer at this point in time, and I was having a conversation with one of my math teachers. He was a charismatic guy, uh, went to a, a, I don't even remember what church it was, but he believed his church was teaching him that you must be baptized, undergo water baptism to be saved. In other words, if you're not dunked, you're damned. That was his theology. And I remember thinking, what on earth? Like, where are you getting this from? And he pointed to this text in John chapter 3. He said, look at what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that's baptism, right? And I was two things in my response to him, unfortunately. Two things. I was both unprepared and I was prideful. I was unprepared and that at that point in time, I didn't really know this text. I wasn't familiar with it. I didn't have an answer for him. 
I was prideful in that I thought that didn't matter and I could just interpret it on the spot and come up with the right, the right uh, interpretation. So the first thing that popped into my head was, uh, this must be physical birth. So I just said to him, no, Jesus isn't talking about baptism. He's talking about physical birth. One has to be born from the womb the first time and then born again from the Spirit a second time. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He looked at me and he said something to the gist of, so you're telling me that every single baby that has died in the womb or been aborted is automatically in hell. Well, immediately I realized I have not thought through the implications of what I'm saying. Now, I don't want to chase the rabbit trail of infant salvation today. There's certainly texts you could look at. Uh, David's hope in seeing his young uh, child that dies is one text. There's other things in Matthew. Um, you may in this room disagree on that. I don't want to chase that trail today. But I did realize, above all else, that I was very foolish in my response to him that I said the first thing that popped into my head thinking that I knew what I was talking about when really I was not. So I did some digging. What is Jesus saying? If Jesus is not talking here about physical birth, what then could he be talking about? Some of you, I'm sure, have already guessed what text we're going to, but turn with me over to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel, of course, was the prophet who was around the time of the Babylonian exile. He was a contemporary of Daniel. And he has some very instructive words for us in this regard. What does Jesus mean? Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Rather, let's start in verse 24. Ezekiel 36, verse 24. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Verse 25, and this is key. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put, verse 27, my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinance. So what is Jesus talking about back in John 2? He's talking about cleansing, being cleansed. This idea of water, you must be born of water in the spirit. It's this idea that you must be cleansed, you must be made pure in God's eyes. And the only avenue for doing that is if you're born again as if God's Spirit indwells you. It's the work of the Spirit to give regeneration, to give eyes of faith, to see Jesus, to see who he is, to be made clean. And Jesus knows that Nicodemus, above all else, this is what you need. You need to be born of water and the Spirit. And later on in John 3, he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Amazing perception. Amazing Perception. Nicodemus was very imperceptive, but Jesus rightly saw him. You know, it's interesting. We don't have Nicodemus' response. We don't know if he became a believer or not. We're not left with that information. We only know what the text gives us. And it, the, the, the conversation, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus ends, verse 21. We'll see Nicodemus a couple times later. He's one of the ones who helps bury Jesus with Joseph of uh, Arimathea. 
It's possible that he was a believer at this point in time. It's also possible he was just this sympathetic guy who remembered this conversation he had with Jesus and felt maybe sorry for him that he had been unjustly treated and wanted to help out. We don't know. We don't know. And it's not really for us to know. The text doesn't say. But where does this leave us today? Where is this information about Jesus and his conversation with Nicodemus? How does this have anything to do with us? Well, there's a couple points I think we can take from this, and we'll close uh, with these. First of all, this text should cause us to be humble. Should cause us to be humble. Why? Why? We have done nothing at all to secure our salvation. The very fact that we as believers here today are born again is not of us at all. It's only because God, through his spirit, has caused us to be born again. Like I said, remember this verb here, born again. It's a passive verb. That means Nicodemus and we and anybody else cannot cause themselves to be born again. It must be something that the Lord does. And that should cause a great deal of humility in us because unhumble Christians, Christians who are prideful, it's a great hindrance to the gospel. And I battle that as I know we all in this room do. This text should cause us to be humble. Another thing this text can teach us is it helps us understand evangelism. Uh, Dr. Bolin mentioned when he introduced me that I've been a part of evangelism society here for the last few years. And one of the things in evangelism society, when you go out and you talk to people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they just don't seem to get it, it's really tempting to be like, man, do I need to do something better? Do I need to, I don't know, butter up this message, make them want to accept it? What do I do? How do I properly give the gospel? Again, it's the Lord who causes one to be born again. There's nothing you can do in evangelizing, whether that's in a context like Evangelism Society where we're going out and talking to strangers or it's just with friends that you know who are not believers. Whatever the context for evangelism may be, you are not the one who's responsible to save someone. You're the one who's responsible to give the message. And the Lord is the one who's responsible to make them born again if it's in his will. And maybe there's some of us here in this room today who don't know the Lord, who have not been born again. In a room this big, this large, with so many of us here, maybe students who have been here for a few months who are out from their parents for the first time, they don't want to come here, you don't want to be here, your parents are making you come here. This text gives a great impetus that you must be born again. Otherwise, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. If you do not know the Lord today, you must come to the cross, to the foot of the cross where Jesus laid down his life for sin. He died. He rose again on the third day. You must turn from your sin, turn from self-righteousness, thinking that before God I can make it on my own because none of us can. You must turn to Jesus Christ and place your faith, your trust, wholly in his death and resurrection. He sees all. We've seen that today. Jesus rightly sees all men. He sees everything, and he's coming back, possibly very soon, to judge all. And there's no way to escape unless you run to him for salvation. Turning from yourself, from your sin, your self-righteousness, to Jesus Christ. Paul writes that today is the day of salvation. So friend, if you don't know the Lord here this morning, 
This text is a great text to tell you that you must be born again. We've seen that Jesus rightly sees all men. He knows what's in man in a general sense. We've seen that Nicodemus, he can't rightly see Jesus. He was this truth, or this supposed truth teacher, this spiritual leader in Israel who didn't rightly see Jesus, didn't know the way of salvation. And we see how Jesus rightly sees Nicodemus, how he tells him, Nicodemus, you must be born again or you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning and this text, this, this instructive text that is so helpful for us, thinking about our own salvation and the fact that we have been born again. It's something not caused by ourselves, something not that we've done in our own power, but it's only because of you, and it's only because of your love and your grace towards us. I pray we'd be humble in that. I pray that we would remember that it's not of us, not of us in any way. It's so tempting to just play the religious game and do things under our own power. I struggle with that, and I know I'm not the only one. I pray we'd be humble, humble people. And that when we evangelize, we'd understand that you're the one, Lord, that causes people to have eyes of faith. You're the one that gives them the eyes to see the gospel, to see who you are. Lord, I thank you for this time this morning, this wonderful place we call home here at the Masters University. I thank you for the leadership of this school that is so dedicated to your word, to teaching it, to preaching it, to explaining it. Because in you, in your word, is life. And that's something we are to be grateful for. And all these things we pray in your name, Jesus.